Hello and welcome to Economics in 10 with Pete and Gav. In each podcast, we will be looking at a famous economist and asking 10 questions that hopefully inform you and get you thinking about their influence in modern society today. So who are we looking at today, Pete, and why is he still so relevant? So today, Gavin, we're looking at the work and life, or life and works, of Herman Daly, who one could see as the father of modern ecological economics. Yeah. Uh, So in some respects, he's responsible to quite a significant degree for bringing environmentalism into the mainstream of economics, if... One accepts it is in the mainstream of economics, yes, which fair uh, point. is uh, you know something we can debate. And certainly, he's responsible for questioning many of the assumptions of conventional economics, uh, which I suppose you could argue considers the physical environment as an afterthought at best. Yes. Um, very recently died uh, last year, so to a certain extent, you can view this episode as a tribute. On yeah, I would agree with that. Obituary, yeah, because he probably wasn't in the picture in terms of who we'd, we would do, would we? And then he died, and you kind of looked at his stuff and thought, "Wow, this is a bloke we've got to do an episode on." Well, it's interesting you should say that because um, obviously my uh, master's degree was in environmental economics, and as I was reading up, I thought, "I remember this. I remember yeah. this. I remember this." There's quite a lot of uh, that actually came back. Yeah. Um, when I was sort of doing some research for this episode. And, so, and he is a fascinating dude. A really fascinating yeah. character. Lots of, uh, uh, you know, great ideas, uh, you know, food for thought, shall we say. And I guess in terms of his influence on modern society today or modern uh, thinkers today, it's hard to see, um, you know, people like Kate Rayworth or, you know, the idea of the circular economy mm. without Herman Daly. Yeah, definitely. And I think probably <laughs> they, they would, you know... The, the thinkers behind those ideas would, would agree with us, uh, I would yeah. suspect. Um, so, uh, yeah, like I said, uh, very recently sort of passed on. So we can see, we will, we'll, this episode, I'm, I'm sure um, the people around him will be delighted by this. <laughs> but we can see as a tribute yeah. to, to his life and work. And so what, what we normally like to do is to place our economists in their time, but to a certain extent, not that he's a contemporary of ours, he was obviously relatively elderly when he died, uh, but he is a rough contemporary of my parents, you know, born in the interwar years and lived through, you know, the major events of the 20th century, the Second World War, the Cold War. And I suppose, importantly, from the point of view of his life's work, you see the rise of the modern environmental movement uh, in the sort of post-war era, which he was to make significant uh, contributions to. So I'll talk a little bit about his biography, and there's a really sort of good brief biography by himself, an autobiography, if you like, um, which uh, is, uh, he writes or, you know, he's written in response to one of the numerous awards uh, that he won uh, during his lifetime. It's almost like one of those Nobel Prize biogs. And I think it is for an award which is, in some respects, considered to be a kind of alternative Nobel Prize. Yeah, the Green Nobel Prize. What was it called? The Right Livelihood Award. That's right, yeah. But he he won a few sort of uh, awards of that nature. Um, So in terms of his biography, he's born in Houston in Texas in 1938. Um, And like, I suspect, the vast majority of people in, in America... His grandparents were immigrants, uh, so on one side, on his father's side, from Ireland. So uh, there's an affinity there for me, yeah, with my Irish ancestry. Oh, very good. Uh, but grandparents on his mother's side from Germany, mm-hmm. yeah. So um, 
not an affinity with me. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, in quite a few of our episodes, there's been reference to the Great Depression, and certainly Daly's family was affected by the Great Depression. It left them unable to attend university, in his in his words. Um, so his dad uh, opens a retail store, sort of handling carpenters' tools. Yes, and certainly gets a sense. You get a sense of sort of this very strong work ethic uh, coming from his father, and he works in that store. Uh, and he, you know, he believes that's part of his sort of formative, uh, you know, the mm. one of the formative experiences of his life. Uh, he's got a younger sister. And certainly, in his own words, he gets the importance of independence from his father, but his mother uh, taught him to be sincere and ethical. And he's obviously uh, very fond of both his parents. Well, and also, <clears throat> I saw that, obviously, when he was working in his... Is it... What was his dad going to have? It's a sort of... Uh, it's a retail store selling carpenters' yeah. tools. And where he lived, there was segregation. Mm. And basically his dad wasn't sort of into that if no. that makes sense and yeah, basically yeah. he said look we're not doing that nonsense treat everybody yeah, we as everyone. equal and, and yeah. again he, that was kind of like a big yeah. thing in his life I think wasn't yeah. it and he was um, he was religious yeah Methodist so, upbringing yeah, yeah. Did you, you had a Methodist upbringing so. yeah. yeah I mean when I read it I felt we were kindred spirits yeah. you know yeah. so, and, and that ultimately is a huge influence throughout his life yeah, the Methodism, certainly. And I wasn't aware of that, but it's this kind of... And I suppose you can see um, Schumacher was the same, I suppose. It, you know, when you... It must give a quite a strong sort of purpose to, you know, work in the environmental area if you see it as sort of God's sort of planet, if you yeah. like, or God's work. Well, there's, a brilliant, there's an interesting interview I read with him where he was talking about the existence of God. Hmm. No, of the planet yeah. being created by God yeah. and where he argues against science related to it and it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a well I might should I, should I bring that up now yeah go on yeah. okay no it's really uh, I'll see if I can quickly uh, find it because it is a really fascinating um, thing that he talks about which is uh, you know what do you think the meaning of life is and he goes everyone has an answer to that even if it's just a punt but I'm a Christian I do think there's a creator I don't think that you can say life is an accident which is really what scientific materialism says Neo-Darwinism has got on a free ride philosophically for a long time. When you calculate the compound probability of all these infinitesimally probable events happening at once to generate life, it becomes quite absurd. The Neo-Darwinist types say, yes, we accept that. That's mathematics. It's totally improbable that life should have originated by chance in our universe. But we have infinitely many unobserved universes. Infinitely many universes unobserved? Question mark. Mathematically, it could have happened. And our universe is the lucky one? Question mark. They look down their noses at religious people who say there's a creator. That's unscientific. What's the scientific view? We won the cosmic lottery. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Not not dissimilar to Schumacher then. You know, yeah. Sort of get sort of some sense from Schumacher of this sort of divine uh, yeah. sort of creator. Yeah, and he and obviously there's a big amount of his work is about the ethics of economics, isn't it? Yeah. Certainly, I mean, about bringing ethics back into uh, the field of economics. Uh, we'll come on to that later, but certainly he sort of distinguishes between the early sort of political economists, people like Ricardo, Smith, or even Marx to a degree, who would have made no separation between sort of ethics, philosophy and economics. Yeah. Whereas the kind <clears throat> of neoclassical economics, which was very dominant even in his sort of early sort of undergraduate and postgraduate years... Uh, there's none of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's no, you know, it's just seen as a scientific. I think. 
So going back to his childhood, uh, he, he considered himself to be a shy child, but you know, quite active, swimming, tennis, uh, reading books. Uh, but then a major event when he's seven, he contracts polio. So that leads to sort of partial paralysis, you know, quite a, a lengthy period of hospitalization. Then his left hand is completely paralyzed. Um, and so a lot of the sports which he'd enjoyed up until that point, he, he couldn't sort of uh, play anymore. Interesting, he could play tennis at seven though. I was thinking, yeah. Yeah, must have been quite, quite decent. Yeah. I remember taking my daughter to tennis sort of, you know, for quite a few years actually, even by seven, you know. And she's, you know, she's not on sport, you know, but you know, you could see all of them, you know, sort of wafting the racket around. Yeah. It's quite a technical sport <clears throat> for young kids to play. You're not, you're not house, hot housing enough. Yeah. Uh, uh, the Tiger Woods yeah. dad. Yeah. What was it, Andre Agassi? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so, um, interestingly, sort of between seven and 14, you know, there's various treatments going on, but his left hand sort of just completely sort of atrophied, sort of shrunk as it were, and it's causing various complications. So they decide to amputate at that point. Um, but it's his decision, isn't it? Yeah, uh, and in some respects, it's, it's quite an interesting quote. It says, this painful experience taught me to concentrate on what I am able to do yeah. and not waste energy on things that I can't do. Yeah, and also then fed into his kind of life's work about how you've just got to, you know, work within yourself. Yeah, do what you can yeah, do and exactly. not what you can't do. <clears throat> yeah. So quite interesting. He certainly refers back to, you know, that moment as being quite yeah. quite an important one. You can imagine as a seven-year-old, you know, as well, 14 by the time he's amputated, but certainly the loss of usage of a, of a hand yeah. at that age. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, and certainly you, you do get a, a sense of him uh, being sort of quite a genial, sort of positive. It's not scarred him in any way, or it doesn't seem to have done. It seems to have been a... An experience which is used for the good, as yeah, it were. Yeah, yeah. And you know, it's interesting experiences like that can sort of take people in one or two directions. But certainly... did you know he, you obviously studied him at university? Yes. Did you know he didn't have an arm? No. No. But you've got to bear in mind that I, this is one of the the beauties of this podcast. There's lots of things that I've come across through this podcast that, to my shame, I didn't know. Yeah. I didn't even know like Arthur Lewis was black, for example, until we <laughs> started mad, studying. It? Oh, Lewis Turning Point, Lewis yeah. Turning Point. It's just a sort of fairly, you know, brief reference in many sort yeah. of A-level economics books. And then you think, bloody hell, you know, this rich yeah, life that right. Lewis had. Anyway, wait, wait we don't digress. <laughs> um, so moving on to, to his career, he's interested in the humanities as well as science. And so he chooses economics as what he perceives to be as some kind of sort of midpoint between the two. Uh, he said, I thought, you know, I thought economics would be somewhere between the natural yeah. sciences, but also, you know, humanities, philosophy. And he's quickly disabused of that when he starts studying it. And, and again, I found some affinity with that because I think that, you know, going back to my level choices, I did maths, English literature and economics. Oh, you know, economics will be somewhere sort of between the maths that I enjoy and the English. Yeah. And it really wasn't. <laughs> he's got a great expression for it, isn't it? have a leg in one camp and leg in the, and then I found out they had both legs in the air <laughs> <laughs> that was it I love that legs yeah. in the air expression but he does make that reference back to the you know the classical uh, school of thought you know your Ricardos your Smiths your John Stuart Mills yeah. who would have you know quite carefully sort of linked economic ideas to ethics to human goals and so on so he's immensely disappointed by the neoclassical yeah. school of economics which is is dominant um so in a sense, you know, he sets himself quite an ambition, which is to study economics with the goal of restoring what he calls biophysics and ethics to the field. Mm. 
So he says, I need to, I needed to convert my disappointment into motivation. Yeah. And to a certain extent, you think, Christ, that's a hell of an ambition. But he does pull it off to a yeah. degree. You know, if you think about his legacy, <clears throat> he has sort of reintroduced, um, you know, some of that, you know, that those ethical concerns are certainly broadened in sort of conceptual terms what he understands economics to be. And a lot yeah. of people have gone with that. Not the mainstream, but certainly yeah. some quite significant voices uh, outside of the mainstream. But it's interesting what you're saying about, I, I don't know if you're going to talk about this now, but like after World War II or whatever, and you're saying that the growth of sort of environmental economics mm. and about how he talks about how he could, in the 60s, I think it was, he yeah. could get his papers published yeah. in these journals. Yeah, yeah. And then suddenly it was just a li- literally a switch off point yeah, right, from yeah. the 70s, basically mid 70s, I think almost. Yeah. He just wouldn't accept anything that he kind of wrote. Yeah. And I mean, like, as a discipline, it's so weird, isn't it? Yeah. How captured it became yeah. by what I know this whole point of what's it, heterodox? I can't say the word economics or heterodox. Heterodox economics. <laughs> yeah. You know, that we need to have this kind of yeah. plurality yeah. Or, or whatever. And, and what, what happened? Yeah. It's just, it's, it's, it kind of, it beggars belief really that all these kind of guys just got suddenly Schumacher and Daly just like, bye. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think there's, anyway. Anyway, we digress, but I suspect there's quite a conscious movement to yeah. sort of <laughs> take over certainly the, you know, the major sort of graduate schools and then, you know, yeah, the and bit, that filters yeah. out through, you know, the university sector more generally. Um, so anyway, going back to his career, career, he graduates from Vanderbilt University in 1967 um, I think he was an undergraduate somewhere else before that, so, which I sort of did make an off, but I can't see it now. Um, he's an associate professor relatively quickly at Louisiana State, and then a full professor by 1973. Um, also, sort of during that period, he spent some time as a research associate at Yale, and importantly in terms of his life's history, he's a visiting professor at the University of, I'm not sure how to pronounce this, Chiara in Brazil. No. And why do you think he goes to Brazil? Study poverty. Yes, I know. He, he met his first wife, uh, not his first wife, his only wife, Marcia, uh, whilst at Vanderbilt University. And Brazil comes a kind of second home for him. Oh, I thought he met her yeah. over there. I, got, I thought the impression it was at Vanderbilt University. Uh, right, and okay. he went there afterwards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, right. uh, I might be wrong, Gavin. You might be right. No, I could be wrong. Occasions, yeah. Um, <laughs> So he does, he does sort of travel with his work, but he does, as you, we've alluded to already, refer to the kind of the narrow nature of, you know, university economics, you know. Yeah. So, for example, he says economics at the university, this is LSU, had become conservative and emphasised existing styles only, which I could no longer accept. And he says at that time, the neoclassical school's influence had increased and the folks had become narrower and more conservative. Uh, they did not even look at resources or the environment or ignored them more often than not when they did. But um, he, he did say that, though. He said he he started off as... He was like everyone else. He was yeah, a growth yeah. economist. Yeah, 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 And it was when he went to Brazil yeah. that it was like, oh, we're kind of seeing maybe potentially growth happen, how you can get people out of poverty. Yeah. And he was like looking at all oh, what was going on with resources over there. And it's like, all right, we need to have a bit of a different yeah. story here. What... It's quite astonishing, or I found almost comical, is that because of the narrow nature of the, um, you know, the, the university curriculum, if you like, he joins the World Bank. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you're kind of thinking, well, always associate the World Bank with that sort of very narrow sort of Washington consensus, Bretton Woods institution. Yeah. And he sees that as, as you know, having more potential breadth and openness. Yeah. I mean, he, he actually comes later on to not necessarily think yeah, that, yeah, but yeah. relatively speaking as an institution, you think, Christ, it must have been very narrow. Yeah. Uh, you know, if that's sort <laughs> of, you're moving to the World Bank. To potentially, you know, take on more sort of heterodox thought. Um, so he's senior economist in the environmental department of the World Bank. He's quite humble about that because he's saying, you know, senior economist. He says, well, it sounds like a high-ranking position, but above that, you've got the principal economist, the lead economist, and the chief economist. And what he actually does there is he looks at, uh, you know, I think countries or yeah, apply to the World Bank for projects like loans, roads, airports, and so on. And he does some of the environmental impact analysis yeah. uh, associated with that. And you know, if uh, you know it was felt that the environmental impact was significant, then he would or him and his team would make proposals to reduce that environmental load. Yeah, because that was a big thing, isn't it? When we, when yeah. we teach that, don't you? In you know, before you probably arrived. The structural adjustment programs had no emphasis did it at all really on the environment yeah and so he went in and to kind of pushed and pushed and pushed for that and now Indeed. there there is there is more of an environment i mean there is it is a wider remit now yeah i mean he said at the time you know very rarely would any of these sort of proposals be accepted because the you know what was perceived to be the high cost yeah so he does leave the the world bank you know you know not not that he was sort of uninfluential during that period and you kind of think there is a legacy there as we'll see in some of you know the ideas he left behind and as you said I suspect these days at least lip service is is paid to sort of environmental sort of impact and you do see that in any sort of major infrastructure you know they they have to you know infrastructure development in this country you know there has to be some sort of environmental impact analysis and sort of mitigation has to be put in place if you know there is a major environmental impact I suspect some of it or much of it in fact is lip service but you wouldn't get any of that probably unless it was for people like Daly bringing that yeah. into uh, you know pop the public debate and so on well it's that thing isn't it about just basically getting a conversation started isn't it yeah and in terms of sort of conversation started he's quite he's quite a humble man and that I think that comes through in quite a lot of his sort of um He's very quotable as well. I mean, there's tons of quotes I could come out with. But he said, my duty is to do the best I can and put out some ideas. Wherever the seed that I plant is going to grow is not up to me. It's just up to me to plant it and water yeah. it. Sounds like a very religious quote as well. Yeah. You can imagine sort it of... It reminds me of um, when I read that Phillips's one about just letting the hairs... Oh, letting the hairs yeah. run. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I kind of feel there's a sense of that. Yeah. But there is an almost sort of... I don't know, you know, a religious sort of twang if you like to some of his sort of quotes you can imagine like some sort of charismatic preacher coming out of him <laughs> yeah good yeah, genuinely you yeah, know, yeah, I, I don't mean that in all seriousness and he did work quite closely with a sort of um, a Methodist theologian Cobb yes Cobb yeah, yeah which is a common good book wasn't it yeah so he does leave uh, the World Bank he's sort of at the World Bank between 1988 and 1994 and I think he does find that period frustrating but he does leave behind a really funny leaving yeah, speech I don't speech know if you read that yeah, yeah it's, it's and we must post that because yeah. it's uh, it's very funny you know very funny but also very pointed yeah in terms of its critique of uh, the sort of management style at the World Bank you know now everyone sort of 
treads on eggshells. No one's yeah. really frank with each other. There's not a great deal of openness. Yeah. But also, you know, just, you know, it's very sort of narrow sort of lens of, you know, perception, if you like. And so he is, in a very funny way, a very humorous way, yeah. very critical of that. We must post that speech. It's genuinely very funny. Um, so after the World Bank, he is a senior research scholar at the School of Public Affairs in the University of Maryland. Yeah. Um, and we should say a little bit about his family. Um, so I mentioned his wife, Marcia, and they were married for over 50 years. Mm. I think she sort of... Uh, is still around and you know in his words without her cooperation understanding I would not have had this wonderful and fruitful life and he's got two daughters three grandchildren um, and certainly towards the end of his life he talks about enjoying reading and watching movies uh, so yeah sort of a very sort of full life yeah uh, and certainly he, talk, he talks towards the end of his life you know my dream is that everyone on the earth will strive for sustainability to ensure that everyone can enjoy a happy life so I mean, throughout this life, you get this sense of someone who is uh, an optimist and an idealist, if you like, which is quite inspiring, actually, because you don't, we don't see that with many of our economists, yeah. that sort of idealistic sort of vision of what the future uh, could be like, if you like. Um, so, yeah, going back to where they met, uh, Marcia was an exchange student from Brazil studying at Peabody College near Vanderbilt yeah, University okay. where he was studying. <laughs> Uh, so after his graduation, he's invited to Brazil as a guest researcher and they continue their relationship. So they marry when he's 25 in 1963. Yeah. And he describes Brazil as his second home. Yeah, because he speaks Portuguese, isn't he? I wonder if he... He must have learnt Portuguese. Well, yeah, you, you would imagine so. You yeah. wouldn't learn that as a sort of... No. ...high school in America. Oh, yeah, I want to yeah. learn Portuguese. You know, that's kind but of I wonder like, if he did it when he knew he was going <clears> to <throat> try and chat her up. <laughs> who knows maybe that's a question for the, the end question yeah, yeah who knows yeah. Uh, so uh, he's as he said two daughters uh, grandchildren uh, and three three grandchildren I think we mentioned as well the sort of Methodism yeah. which I think sort of ran through him like uh, for a, a stick of rock if you yeah. like you can see that and certainly. I think you know obviously he's only recently passed away but you know not long before that happened you know, the, this bit, new book did come out by who we get on to Peter Victor, wasn't it? I think yeah. his name is, and yeah. and like, and there did seem to be this kind of rising up of his ideas in many respects, yeah. stimulate from that book, and obviously yeah. we've talked about it before, Kate Rayworth's Stone yeah, Economics, yeah. Yeah. and I, I wonder if he kind of felt it was not a good time to you know part, you know, do you know what I mean? It's like that he yeah. saw. Had hope for the future. Yeah, well, it'd be nice to think that you know, you know, towards the end of you know life, sort of well lived, if you like, you can see your ideas being picked up and perhaps you know, see that sort of optimism yeah. uh, for the future. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, as I said, it died only October last year. Yeah. So uh, we should say what year that is, Pete. Twenty twenty-two. Yeah. Yeah. Just okay. in case someone's listening to this in, in ten two. years' time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Probably what our podcast then it'll probably be you know, some sort of mental projection that we'll make from our living room. <laughs> so quite a few ideas I could talk about. 
Um, but I'm going to talk first of all about the ISEU. Are you yes. familiar with that? The Index of Sustainable Economic Welfare. Yeah, which has been superseded by uh, the Genuine Progress Indicator. Yes, which we talked about with our friends from Scotonomics. Uh, we did, yeah. Mm. yeah. Um, so what they're trying to do, this is back in 1989, uh, Daly and Cobb, who we've mentioned, um, like a number of thinkers, and to be fair, like its actual uh, inventor, Kuznets, very critical of GDP. And Kuznets, you know, to be fair to him, who sort of came up with the sort of formal concept, conceptual sort of framework for calculating GDP, was very critical and said, whatever you do, don't use it as a measure of sort of economic progress, which of course is what everyone has done yeah. since. So like many, like people like Sen, uh, you know, who sort of contributed to the development, the Human Development Index, uh, Daly and Cobb wanted to come up with an alternative and so this index of sustainable economic welfare, um, do you want me to talk through the different elements of that very quickly? Yeah, I think you yeah. should do. So, yeah, so it would incorporate personal consumption, so that would be part of that. It would also uh, talk about public non-defensive expenditures. So in other words, spending by the government on things which aren't related to defence. And then you would subtract from that, pri- you know, private uh, defence expenditures. Um, you would add in capital formation. Uh, so in other words, you know, the the growth of sort of factories, capital goods and so on. You would also add in the services from domestic labour, which again, a number of thinkers have seen as an overlooked area of uh, sort of economic activity, which is not, because it's not marketed in any way, doesn't make it into GDP statistics. And then again, a couple of minuses. You would minus the costs of environmental degradation and you would minus the depreciation of natural capital. So those last two elements uh, you know, are like greening the GDP yeah. figure, if you like, uh, for, for want of a better, a better word. I mean, there's quite a few since then indices which have been developed that uh, move away from sort of this sort of money value of goods and services that GDP is and try and ind- indicate in- include uh, sort of other elements. So, I mean, there's obviously the Human Development Index, somewhere called the Thriving Places Index, the Better Life Index, Happy Planet Index. Um, so I think the genuine progress progress indicator is a development of the ISEW. Yeah. yeah. And the, I mean, the, the key point he's trying to point out there, isn't it, is that economic growth only, only measures the benefits. Yeah. And, it's, and that's the key thing. And, and then, you know, You've got. Uh, I was thinking it's going to come over, isn't it? Is that there's an acceptance, isn't it, in microeconomics of cost-benefit analysis, isn't there? Mm. Do a project. We all, as economists, know, right? Yeah. You kind of look at it and think, right? Do the benefits outweigh the costs? Yeah. And then it's weird from a macroeconomics perspective mm. that you know the key thing you look at, you ignore one half of it. You know, yeah. the cost side of it and it is yeah. it is phenomenal to think about that yeah. and yet even with them because how long ago was that that came out index of sustainable I don't know whatever it was there's still while, never yeah. been any sort of 1989 yeah, ge- like genuine movement or discussion to kind of do that I know obviously yeah. this is you know like you said you well, just are, listed lots of things yeah I mean I was surprised actually at the degree to which it hasn't been sort of taken up I mean the, obviously some of those like the HDI is calculated quite regularly. Mm. But HDI is quite narrow, really, when yeah. you consider it. Like, it's like life expectancy, 
years of schooling, and then oh, there's GDP per capita sneaking in there as well. Yeah. So it's a quite a well. I thought because it's, it's obviously better than GDP, but it's still quite yeah. a narrow. Well, I looked measure. up GPI because I thought, oh, I'll do that as a quiz ranking countries. There's yeah. no, there's no, no ranking, there isn't. No, there's no. nothing out there. Yeah. And then, and then I looked up something else, like related to. Oh yeah, well, just that when you look up the index of sustainable economic welfare, they just basically say, oh, a couple of countries are trying to do it. Yeah, and that's basically it. Yeah, and it's it's much less taken up even than the Happy Planet Index and things like that. But you kind of look at it and think it seems very sort of yeah sensible i mean maybe it's the thing though isn't it as always about valuing things i mean a great example of that recently in britain did you see that thing about i think it's wildlife watch who basically turned around and said hs2 massively undervalued all of the natural environment yeah um and so basically again it just shows how expensive this project is you know and i think that's the thing is that people are fearful of putting prices on things that's just yeah. literally it isn't it and, and then it's so prone to um, because it's sort of fairly arbitrary good there are methods I mean this is one of the things I studied as part of my master's degree sort of different sort of methods of, econ- of environmental uh, you know valuing environmental assets but they're, they're quite you know you look at them and think really yeah, that's arbitrary. what they do you know uh, hmm but his, but again, his his interesting turn of phrase, which I've never, I've never mentioned this in the classroom before, and I don't know if you ever have, but just seeing about how if you've got GDP growth and yeah. what is it, the index of sustainable economic welfare is positive, then it's fine. You get growth yeah. without many issues. But as soon as the index of sustainable economic welfare is negative, he then describes that, doesn't he, as on economic growth. growth yeah so it's growth which doesn't actually advance welfare yeah which is a massive thing yeah, on economic yeah. growth yeah. and that's where he eventually kind of gets on to i suppose steady state yeah. but like, there's loads of his, there's loads of his terms that i like but like that but just to think about how we would never think of flipping it like you teach economic growth and at the end of it you a great question would be to students, what would uneconomic growth look like? Yeah. But you would never use that phrase. Yeah. And there's it, another one as well about um, the opposite of wealth. Did you read about that? That he uses Carol. called ILS. No, I didn't read Yeah, that. that's the thing. So he talks about it from, again, in this concept. It's like, you know, the illness of kind of, yeah. you know, sort of the planet as it were. Yeah. So ILF, apparently the, the concept was developed from John Ruskin, the phrase ILF. Oh, right. Okay, but it's just, again, he's trying to get um, people to speak a different language. Yeah. This is the thing, isn't yeah. it? I think that, and that's, like recently, not really, well, I read this kind of Monbiot book, which was, um, I can't remember what it He's got a concept, and that's what his whole book was on. That was about we've lost the storytelling, and what you kind of I get from daily, and you may disagree, is that he is trying to change the narrative, narrative. yeah, absolutely, Um, and and has been obviously trying to bang that door for for so long. But is that but that's got to come into common parlance, I think. Like it's got to be in the syllabuses, you know. Talk now about uneconomic growth, you've talked about wealth what's ilth yeah. yeah you've talked about you know this kind of human capital yeah. or about environmental capital yeah. oh we've talked about this you know. many times the sort of blinkered nature of the, the economics that we we teach um, yeah but it's interesting just that sense of what can be counted and it goes back to something we've talked about a number of times as a kind of 
insecurity which dates back to not the political economy of like Ricardo Smith and so on but certainly once you get into that kind of marginal revolution there's this insecurity oh we want to be more like physics yeah. and be able to count everything and if we can't count something yeah, it's we just not ignore it. we just ignore, <laughs> just ignore it. it and you kind of think yeah you can't i can't do that you yeah. know um so just yeah. i mean I'll, a lot of his ideas to be honest that you know i was looking oh, there's quite a few ideas i could talk about but they are all related um you mentioned the idea of uneconomic growth which we've talked about and that is very simply defined as as economic growth in GDP terms that creates a decline in the quality of life or reflects that. And I was thinking, actually, obviously, you know, we've had a period of relatively low growth in the UK in the last sort of, probably since the financial crisis of 2008. But the growth that we have had, you could argue, to what degree yeah. has that improved people's quality of life? Yeah. We are. We have probably been. Austerity probably has created uneconomic growth for yeah. those years. But you know, you know, in GDP terms, the yeah, economy, had, yeah, you know, had growth. the economy has grown. Even but if it's marginal, that, yeah, it's, it's still in sort of numerical terms, a substantial sort of addition, if yeah. you like, to you know, goods and services. But yeah. has but that more added mental to, health, more stress? Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah, and you kind of yeah. think at what cost, almost. Yeah. 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 And you do think, have we lived through a period of uneconomic growth? Yeah. And it does link to some of the things we've talked about before about sort of happiness being sort of a better aim. And, and, and you know, again, it comes out, oh, but how do you define happiness? It's like part of you thinks, who cares? You know, it's like if it's more important than GDP, just because yeah. we can't measure it as well, you, you can't just sort of pick your life goals yeah, or some yeah. things that can be measured and anything else is sort of because it's difficult to sort of operationalize we therefore ignore it i mean it just seems crazy you wouldn't do that in your own life yeah. you think well i can't sort of measure the quality of my friendships or my romantic love i can't measure it so therefore i'm not going to pursue it i mean it's like you, could, you, you just wouldn't do that yeah, like yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. i can't measure how much i love my children and therefore well, i'm not going to love them you know i'm not going to spend any time with them because it can't be measured yeah, yeah. It's, it's crazy real. it's crazy um, so, okay, on economic growth, we've mentioned the other sort of concept which he's associated with, although he credits uh, John Stuart Mill with the concept, is that of the steady state economy. And in some respects, I remember reading about this in Kate Rayworth's Donut Economics, which in a sense is completely neutral about GDP growth. Yeah. It's like, you know, it can happen, I think it can not happen. Well. Well, he yeah, is, he is. It's, like, yeah. it's almost like I don't care, you know, if in GDP terms the economy grows or not, you know, but it's more that, um, you know, does it actually lead to sort of human betterment? But there is a specific sort of definition of, um, you know, what what is meant by a steady state economy. And that's where you've got sort of a a stable population and stable levels of sort of human capital, sorry, of capital. And it could be that, uh, you know, the economy grows, you know, for, you know, with those two sort of things constant. Uh, which is, is, is entirely possible. But in a sense, he's neutral about that. But it's not like you can't, um, there can't be great levels of human well-being just because you've got a stable population and stable capital. Because it, it opens up the idea, well, there's lots of other things yeah. that make for kind of uh, this broader conception of human prosperity, you know, beyond simply goods and services. And, you know, we can concentrate on those. <laughs> 
you know it, you know so the steady state economy just to, just to go back to that is this idea that you would have you know a stable population size you wouldn't be constantly trying to increase levels of capital and that would allow if you like a, a focus on uh, sort of other ways of sort of developing human betterment but also as well without this kind of constant erosion of the natural environment which the whole human economy sits on top of um, so there's a nice sort of quote here it says a successful steady state economy not to grow is not a disaster mm. it's like the difference between an airplane and a helicopter an airplane is designed for forward motion if an airplane has to stand still it'll crash a helicopter is designed to stand still like a hummingbird so it's almost like if your economy doesn't grow in GDP terms, it is seen as a disaster. You know, poli- you know, elections are lost over it, politics, politicians pull their hair about it. But he's saying, well, if your goal is instead a steady state economy, it could move in either direction, it could yeah, move yeah. forward a bit, you know, it could sort of just stand still, you know, but it doesn't, it's not a disaster. You know, yeah. it's it's fine. Um, the, the issue with steady state economics in many respects is that it just does bring about really difficult questions and conversations yeah. you know such as we've got to redistribute yeah, yeah. No, it you, does. you've got to somehow manage your population there's a, there's a quote I think about about Malthus saying about how you know his his ideas have never died basically mm. even though some would argue they're controversial maybe we should be having a bit of a think about why they haven't died you know and, that, and that's you know kind of important it's a really difficult one because you know he he, I mean are you going to talk about his three three rules yes oh okay just just to talk about Malthus really briefly though you could argue you know Malthus has been proven wrong population so almost agricultural productivity has exceeded population growth so we can feed ourselves many times over Um, but you look at that and then think about but what at what cost the natural environment yeah you know if you think about the impact of of pesticides and sort Mm. of etc yeah uh climate change even um but there are issues there in terms of it's all very well so you know we'll have a a steady state economy in the west where you've already got significant levels of capital formation but to impose that on other countries you know there are and you talk about redistribution it would have to be sort of between yeah, countries exactly. and that's obviously politically Global, yeah politically sort of and it's going to have to be institutions like the WTO or you know and the IMF and the World Bank and he's revealed what it's like within those organisations yeah. and you kind of think yeah. they're not going to be radical anytime soon yeah so, so you mentioned his three rules and these relate to sort of resource use um so it's, it's three rules. Number one, the sustainable use of renewable resources requires that consumption not be greater than the rate at which resource, resources regenerate. You think of that in simple terms, like a forest. You can use yeah. the forest, but it has to grow at the same rate yeah. as which you are sort of cutting down the trees. Down, yeah. Yeah. Um, the sustainable use of non-renewable resources, so your oils, your gas and so on, requires that the rate of consumption not be greater than the pace at which renewable substitutes can be put into place. Again, sounds very sensible. If you've got to use up oil as you're using it up, you've got to put in place sort of non-renewable, sorry, renewable alternatives. Which is amazing if you think about, obviously, in the news at the moment with BP and Shell making these billion pound profits, like largest profits in their history. And they've turned around and said, we're rolling back our investment into green energy because of the demand for oil 
or whatever you're kind of like that's Mac you mm. are making that profit that is going back to that isn't it if you yeah. we're using up these non-reviewables you are part of the solution here and you've been banging on about it for years that you are using these kind mm. of tax credits to invest into green energy and as soon as the opportunity arises that they can make some money off the non- non-renewables you know and this is the thing they should be using it's that an absolute scandal yeah it's outrageous. but interestingly he mentions that sort of 20 years ago like we should move away from taxes on income mm. and taxes should be on throughput in effect resource resource usage and it says exactly you know what yeah, should be happening yeah. right now and it's an absolute scandal that it isn't happening right now all this dilly-dallying around about oh, windfall task or put-off investment. We don't want people investing in the North Sea. Yeah. You don't want people investing in more. Yeah. It's like, it's just an absolute nonsense. Yeah. All of that money should be taxed, yeah. you know, like well, yeah. the old sort of Stafford Crips, tax until the pip squeak. Well, you know, no, and, and then it feeds into the, the number two, doesn't it? All that tax can then be put yeah, into a faster rate yeah, of a of renewable, renewable substitute. And it just seems... Yeah. Yeah, an absolute scandal. So anyway, third third law, if you like. The sustainable pace of pollution and waste requires that production not be greater than the pace at which natural systems can absorb, recycle or neutralise them. Yeah. Again, we've seen in the last five years ago, so depressing, just our rivers and sort of seas going backwards with more pollution and they can't absorb it in some... And again, all these bloody sort of water companies being allowed. Oh, yeah. when you know when conditions get a bit tough, yeah, you can release it into the natural. Yeah. No, yeah, you know that's crazy, it's absolute. But on on that scandal, just um, linking it to some A level economics, uh, which you know, just in case some A level economists aren't listening. <laughs> I mean, it's, there was a brilliant interview that I saw with him because he was inspired by um, Nicholas Georgescu Rogan, wasn't he? This yeah. is his kind of yeah. big, like, I know, I, I suppose idol who kind of, and the way he describes it is really fascinating because he says, he goes, when I was at primary school, we used to have these um, children's puzzles and I've looked them up, you know, it's like, mm. guess what's wrong with this picture? Yeah. So, you know, you kind of stare at this picture. And as a youngster, obviously, yeah. for an older one, you'd like look at it and go, that's, but it's like a kettle with minimum at the top and maximum at the bottom. Yeah, yeah. And then you've got I to just stare at it. one of these the other day, actually. Yeah, and you've got to stare and you go, oh, what's wrong with that? You've got time and you're like, all oh, right, I can see. And he that he said about, that's what George Eskew Rogan kind of basically said to yeah. Daly all the time. Yeah. Look at the picture, what's wrong with it? Yeah. And he said, he showed them the circular flow of income. Yeah. And he says, input, output, you know, and you've got the households and the firms, yeah. you, know, you know, it's like national income. Where's the environment? Yeah. And nothing's going into it. Yeah. Nothing's going out of it. It's yeah. just all circular. And we just know that is utter yeah. nonsense. And again, it's that kind of highlighting what's wrong yeah. with the picture. And that's what he's he's talking about yeah. there. I mean, all those rules just sound so common sense. Yeah. yeah. But as a society, <laughs> certainly in the UK, we're breaking these rules with frightening regularity. Yeah. yeah. So, just to move on to, <coughs> excuse me, another sort of conceptualization of his idea. Did you come across Herman Daly's pyramid? No. Okay, well, it's, it's, it's again, all these ideas are interlinked. But you're looking at a pyramid with uh, well-being at the top. So, not GDP. Yeah. You know, the ultimate aim of uh, policies, if you like, or human endeavor should be well-being, not, not GDP. 
And then beneath that, you would have what he called intermediate ends, which would be development of social and human oh, yeah, capital. Oh, yeah, I did come across this, yeah. Beneath that would be intermediate means, like built capital, human capital. And then beneath that, at the base of this pyramid, again, linking to what you were saying about what isn't in yeah. nearly all economic models, would be natural capital. In other words, the you know the, the ecology, uh, the environment. Yeah. <laughs> And yeah, yeah, again, it just seems sort of. And he said that their focus of economists yeah. was too much on the intermediate. Absolutely. And, yeah. not on, and that's the thing he was kind of trying to point out again about why he studied economics. He thought it'd be one foot in the ethics and one yeah. foot in the sciences. And f- this is where he kind of completes that model, doesn't yeah. he? I think he, his one foot is in the, what is it, ultimate end for yeah. ethics. Yeah. You know, and then the. The ecology is, is, the, the, is, is the, the ultimate means. The, yeah. And in a sense, so the, 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 the sort of apex and the base of his pyramid are missing yeah. in most economic discussions yeah. and most policy discussions. We should point out, he's, he is, I know we're obviously chatting about it, but his stuff is very visual, isn't it? Yeah, no, it is. Yeah. You know, I like mean, just, we should post a picture of this yeah. pyramid. It does, you know, you go, oh, yeah, it's a very... But the same with the full world stuff, isn't it? Are you going to get onto that, that kind of, you know, where he just draws a, you know the economy in the middle and then it just gets bigger and it just explodes over the world yeah. basically and they it says what this is the full world we're living in a full yeah. world system not an empty world system yeah. things again have got to change and it's that visual yeah. of that little kind of economy in the middle of a of a circle suddenly yeah. boom you it's know? sort of depressing though because you kind of think all of this seems so commonsensical but it doesn't reflect how we operate particularly when politicians have their backs to the wall. Because you remember way back in 2010 when sort of Cameron's elected, this sort of vote blue, go green. Yeah. And then three years later, he's quoted as saying, you know, behind closed doors, we've got to get rid of all this green crap. <laughs> and it's just this completely sort <laughs> of amazing, shallow... I mean, you know... He is probably one of the most shallow politicians but, 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 of but what I'm saying is our generation and perhaps any generation. This is and what I, gets... Sorry, I shouldn't engage in ad hominem <laughs> argument uh, points, but, but you kind of think there's something so... As soon as there's any danger of political trouble, is this returns are sort of appealing to a natural base, you know, you know yeah, I would argue this is, this is what's, this is the same with business. You know, you look at like all this focus now at the moment with business about ESG, wasn't it? Environment, mm. social and corporate governance. Mm. And then, like, when an opportunity comes along, like Ukraine war, whatever, yeah. or to make money, or yeah. you know, it's like, bosh, yeah, all right, we're now yeah. going to focus on this. This is what shareholders want. We're going to make as much money as possible. We're probably going to buy back some shares as well, not bother investing in the sustainable stuff that we need to. We'll, we'll worry about it in a few yeah. years' time, you know. And, that, and that's the thing is that's why you. I hate to be because as teachers, I don't think we should always be as. Skeptical, skeptical, yeah. as we, sh- you know, because you want to oh, give kids you, hope, don't yeah. you? No, and there but are. you do. You look at ESG something, you go, yeah. oh, I don't believe any of it. Yeah, but there are, <laughs> you know, there are sort of glimmers of hope, aren't there? I mean, you've got, you know, thinkers like Kate Woolworth are, are popular. Yeah, you know, yeah. the concept of a circular economy is popular. Yeah, and her stuff's um, really kind of growing. And you do think, even cities. within the Conservative Party, there are people who are very, you know, pro sort of addressing the climate change. Um, I mean, you kind of hope with a new government, you know, what you really need, of course, is some kind of bipartisan commitment to policies which are going yeah. to span multiple elections. Yeah. You know, you need that kind of almost like, 
I don't know, citizens' assemblies yeah. whereby, you know, the people, you know, get a full understanding of everything that can be done, should be done, and then yeah. you develop that bipartisan consensus. And maybe, you know, maybe we will see that moving forward. In terms of sort of his legacy, you know, he does win a, a numerous awards, you know, the Blue Planet Award, the Right Livelihood Award, which we've mentioned. And he founded, uh, or was part of, the, you know, a group which founded the International Society for Ecological Economics. Yeah which is still going. Um, and there's obvious links with, you know, donor economics, circular economy, which we've mentioned yeah, a few yeah. times. So is there any other... Well, and de- degrowth economics, isn't yeah. there? There's a kind yeah. of, again, yeah. feeds into all of that. that so is there stuff. any other sort of uh, aspects of his work you wanted to refer to? Uh, I don't think so. Yeah. I know, I think we're we're pretty much done there, aren't yeah. we? I mean, we don't we kind of... I think... The, the full wealth thing, I think, is an important one to, to talk, you know, to appreciate yeah. that this, again, his language, you know, yeah. of, of a full world. I mean, like, what what do you do in that scenario? Yeah. You know, you've got to do something about it. And this is, again, what makes me laugh about, um, you know, like the Elon Musks of this world, you know. And in fact, Bill Gates has sort of come out against him, isn't it? He's saying about, I'd rather spend my taxes here trying to sort out this planet not yeah. fly to the to yeah, Mars yeah. and and find another planet yeah. to to use up and yeah. just you know whatever. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's a it's a it's a it's a tricky one, really. Yeah. So anyway, do you want a few quotes from him? Yeah, let's very, go. For very it. quotable. Um, so there is something fundamentally wrong in treating the Earth as if it were a business in liquidation. Yeah, that's quite nice. nice. Uh, uh, the economy is a wholly owned subsidiary of the environment, not the reverse, and that is actually. Yeah absolutely bang on the money yeah. in terms of how traditional or conventional economics treats the environment it's like oh yeah and this is the environment yeah. if it gets mentioned at all yeah. you know there's there's a bit in where I think it's the World Bank report where they wanted to bring in some environmental stuff mm. and he writes, writes a note on it saying yeah. uh, oh on this diagram that you've drawn yeah. you haven't included this you haven't included yeah. that and they send it back to him. Yeah. He says, yeah, I like it, but you just need to do this and do yeah. that. And then I think you'll have a bigger yeah. picture. And then they send it back to him and then he reads the report. <laughs> He's gone. The visual's gone. Because yeah. again, it's that thing of like, it's just yeah. too complicated or whatever to, to kind of bring into that. It's quite interesting about sort of human nature as well. And I think this is where you get a sense of his sort of innate optimism. Uh, he says, if non-satiety, in other words, if like being dissatisfied, dissatisfied with a natural state of human nature, then aggressive, want-stimulating advertising would not be necessary. Yeah. Nor would the barrage of novelty aimed at promoting dis- dissatisfaction with last year's model. Yeah, it is. You know, it just it, even something small like you know, I've got an iPhone and it's been going for like for three years. As soon as your contract comes up at the end, oh, all right, you can get a new one if you want. Yeah. And I was tempted as well. I don't need a new one. Yeah. The, the current one is is fine. <laughs> yeah. But you kind of do get into that, yeah. and like, I saw I saw um, yeah. an interview also that he did, which got me thinking a little bit because um, we mentioned Steve Keen I think last time, but this idea about how you know how is money created, yeah, and just banks can just yeah. digitally add on yeah. stuff, and I saw him talk about that because he says again on a you know when we've got these finite resources. And yet we've got a monetary system that is sort of infinite. Yeah, yeah. Again, that then puts yeah, a yeah. massive, you know, yeah. and I suppose that goes back to um, was, uh, Fisher's kind of, what's it, 100% you know, kind of currency or yeah. whatever. But it just, again, it, it really made me think about, yeah, that's yeah. true, actually. You know, how do you 
sort of stop everyone like wanting more and more and more yeah. and more. You, you sort of have to slow down the monetary system as well. Yeah, possibly, yeah. Um, and one last quote, because yeah. I think it just summarises a lot of the things we've talked about. Future progress simply must be made in terms of the things that really count rather than the things that are merely countable. Yeah. And that's you know, summarising yeah, nice. you know, quite a lot of his sort of philosophy, if you like. So I think we're done there with ideas. I think we are. Yeah. Well, let's give it a ting-tong-ting. There you go. <laughs> right. So what do the critics say about him? Um, you know. Well, I suppose there are other... If we just take the environment as some sort of an externality, in other words, if we try and consider the environment within the framework of classical economics, then there would be other solutions in inverted commas to some environmental problems. Uh, we've talked about in perhaps covering people like Coase, you know, which is all about sort of the impact of property rights, if you like, yeah. on environmental solutions. Um so I suppose there would be some who would say, no, we can deal with um, environmental issues uh, within the sort of classical framework. Um, I mean, for me, that sort of misses the whole point of like, again, it's almost like the environment is some kind of add-on. That Oh, it's a problem, which is almost like apart from uh, neoclassical framework of how the economy works oh but we can bring it in yeah, yeah, from yeah. outside as if it wasn't part of the the whole you know thing in the first place um, so I suppose there have been criticisms of you know the indicator GPI that sort of um, progress indicator um, <laughs> I say criticism it's never really been taken up as we've discussed in, in sort of some sort of meaningful sense so yeah. we can't sort of rank countries or even regions within a country or a country over time for that matter uh, easily as, as you can with other measures like GDP per capita uh, so maybe that would be uh, a good thing yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and I suppose again when you're looking at at kind of marginal level if you like uh, let's say it is the World Bank let's say, and they're sort of looking at we want to build a new dam in some developing country which is going to allow lots of poor people to sort of access energy and improve their quality of life you can see why they would say look we don't have the money to deal with the sort of environmental mitigation impacts and you kind of think yes in some sort of micro level in that country they probably don't but in some broader sort of global sense yeah. we can't <laughs> afford not to <laughs> you know yeah. if, you, if you want to have a planet in the next sort of 50 to 100 years so you can see why you know people might say at this point in time we can't do these things but again, there needs to be a broader conception of like, but they can be done if there is a transfer of resources yeah. from elsewhere to allow sort of developing countries to do so, some of these things. It's interesting. Is it, it is a sort it's of... It's not as if we've got our own house yeah. in order anyway. No, but this is this <laughs> yeah. is the interesting thing because he, he, he his argument is that he doesn't think it's going to be tackled on a global basis and that you should go for, a, say, a steady state within your own country. Yeah, yeah. And except the fact that um you know you, you are going to be undercut by other people yeah. if they're not doing it yeah. but what you do is you stick tariffs on all those products yeah. and and say look the reason we're doing this is because we do not want environmentally un, unfriendly yeah. products coming into yeah. our country yeah. we're going to do it alone but we know that's going to become more expensive yeah. so you end up getting in trade wars and things like that but yeah. it's a really interesting 
kind of thought process to have those arguments made about tariffs yeah. for green green growth, yeah, you know, and forcing other firms. I mean, America would have to kind of lead the way as like the yeah. kind of key trader. But I mean, they're they in Tennessee, but well, maybe maybe they will. But you know, who who knows? America's probably further ahead than we are in yeah. terms of the sort of green agenda. I would say, but that's the thing. Again, it's about well, bringing parts of America, yeah. you know, different states and so on. We're definitely, sort of... but, but again, that nationalism, you know, bringing yeah. everything back within the country and then kind of going against the kind of Ricardo nature of comparative advantage, you know, in order yeah. to become more green and more sustainable and thinking about yeah. how we use our resources, is a real again. Di- it's difficult questions, very difficult questions, you know? and, and they've almost got a remove those sort of layers of indoctrination because you kind of think yeah. you know tariffs are bad you know they impoverish people and so on and probably in some respects they do or they can but if like completely free trade is causing this sort of massive yeah, destruction of the planet they kind of, of race to the bottom <laughs> they kind of think well yeah. okay we might yeah, need to look at exactly. this particular issue again we're going to get growth by having like little Indian children basically stitch our clothing yeah. and whatever or you know China polluting their you know the rivers or whatever yeah. I know obviously it's all moved on a bit more but yeah. you know yeah. it's it's incredible to yeah, yeah think about that is that it do you think I yeah think so. let's go for that okay so uh, it's food time now uh, so what we eat today Pete that has a spurious link with daily I'm assuming it's going to be something sustainable well <laughs> I don't know what it is I don't <laughs> so I did, I did think about Brazilian cuisine because you did mention nice. this sort of um, yeah. uh, you know Brazil was his second home did you, do you know what the national dish of Brazil is? No. I'm probably going to butch the pronunciation. So we got feia joada. Right. A black bean and pork stew, which did sound very nice. Yeah, it does sound nice. Uh, but he's a Texan. Yeah. And actually, when you hear him speak in YouTube, he's got that lovely sort of rich yes. sort of Texan yeah. uh, voice. Now, chili was adopted as the Texas state dish on May the 11th, 1977. Nice. But we're not having chili because I thought you'd have it before. Yeah. All right. Got something else. <laughs> so I was looking up other Texan <laughs> specialties. Right. So we're going to have something called kolaches. Nice. But basically, when I dug a bit deeper, apparently they're originally a dish from the Czech Republic, but they've been adopted by Texans. Right. Say it one more time. I think it's kolaches. Kolaches. Kolaches, yeah. And what is it? Well, okay. It's it's basically like a posh sausage roll. Right. So you've got like sausage. It's it's a similar sort of thing that we had with uh, Ostrom. It's kind of a sausage... Oh, I don't know. Did we have that with Austria? Oh, I don't know. Anyway. Anyway, it's a sausage wrapped in sort of bread dough, an enriched bread dough, uh, with cheese and uh, jalapeno peppers. Well, it sounds very nice. You know what? I couldn't remember whether you like spicy food. Yeah, I hope not too spicy, but let's go for it. Well, this could be interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Right, I'll go and sort that out. So, we're back in the room with our kolaches. What do you think, Gov? Oh, very good. I yeah. do think it's very similar to what we have with Ostrom, but not with the spiciness. Yeah. I like the jalapeno peppers. Yeah. yeah. Like something I can have my wife. She's like anti-spicy food. Really? It's very it's tasty. Quite, quite limiting. Mmm. Mmm. Oh. Yeah, I, I like them. And what did you say? Say one more time. Kalachis. I where, might have completely mispronounced it. Where do, you get, where do you get the recipe from? There's a website called House of Yom. I think she might be a Texan. Well, let's see. I'm going to tuck into that more. Yeah. But let's quiz. Okay. Yeah, great. Go for it. It's not the most upbeat quiz. Okay. (laughs) I looked up celebrities 
Who'd had polio? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I'm going to give you pairings. Yeah. And you've just got to tell me, you know. Have they, haven't they, yeah? Which one out of the two has had polio? Okay, good. Yeah. And a, a little fact for you here. Polio disabled about 35,000 people in the US each year at its peak. Wow. I know. Pretty amazing. And when we go through this list, it is quite interesting to think about limps and stuff like that. Mm. That's a bit of a weird thing to say. Anyway, here we go. Frida Kahlo, Barbara Hepworth. Um, I think Frida Kahlo had a limp amputation. I'm going to say Frida Kahlo. It was Frida Kahlo. Yes. She was six years old at the time and had to spend several months in bed recovering from the disease. Mm. So there you go. Uh, <clears throat> Carla's right leg was left noticeably shorter and thinner than the left one. Right. There you go. Right. Good start. Okay, thank you. Mia Farrow, Diane Keaton. Mm. I'm just going to go for... Go for a Woody, Woody Allen link there. I want to say Mia Farrow. Just on the basis, I think she might be slightly older. Correct! Oh, great. Mia Farrow said she was quarantined with polio at age nine and came home to find her belongings had been burned. Oh. Arnold Palmer, Jack Nicholas. Mm. Oh, that's fun. I think I should have read about this. Uh, right. I am going to say... Jack Nicholas. Correct! Yeah. I don't know, it's not rang a bell somehow. Very mild with him. Yeah. About 13, 14. Right. Francis Ford Coppola, mm-hmm. Martin Scorsese. Coppola. It was my. Yes! You are on fire, Pete. You're going to get fired. This could be the first time. Uh, well, maybe the first time. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> yeah, he contracted polio in 1947. Spent a long time on bed rest. Right. He said, when you had polio then, nobody brought their friends around. I was kept in a room by myself and I used to read and occupy myself with puppets and mechanical things and gadgets. We had a tape recorder and a TV set and things like that. Right. It's interesting, isn't it, about how only this experience, mm. in many respects, set people off down their particular path. Final one, Isaac Asimov, Arthur C. Clarke. One of my favourite science fiction authors, particularly Asimov. Yeah, there you go. Uh, I'll say Isaac Asimov. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> oh. Four out of five. You did very well, Pete. Mm. So there you very go. Very respectable for me. Yeah, that's not bad. Okay. Right. So, we're moving on to our next question, which is. Okay. Everyone is always interested in who the next Bond is going to be. And we thought it'd be fun to think about whether our economist would make a good Bond. What do you think, Pete, about uh, Daly? Well, he's a good guy. Yeah. He's got quite a dry sense of humour. Yeah. So I kind of see him as a Roger Moore era Bond. Mm. But, you know, I I came down, I did a sort of bit of research because I was thinking, who's that American dude who always pops up in James Bond film? Felix Leiter. Yeah. And apparently he lost a limb or two. And, you know, he had various iterations in the Bond films, but 
in one of them, albeit it wasn't polio, it was a shark attack. And we're not sort of joking here about amputations, but yeah. it's like a nice sort of link. Got a license to kill. So he's a kind of uh, an American. I think it's in that film, isn't it? That's why I sang that. Oh, did you? Yeah. yeah. He comes up in loads, and he see Felix Light is like a recurring character. No, I know that, but I think it's that film where he gets eaten by a shark. Oh, does he? Yeah. Um, yeah. I couldn't find out where in the US Felix Light was from. Right. But he was into Dixieland jazz, apparently, the character, which suggested he might have been from a southern state. <laughs> right. So yeah. I did think there was some tenuous links to Daly. Very tenuous. Don't know what music Daly was into. No. No. It's uh, unfortunate. Yeah, well, he could speak Portuguese, so he had two languages. I always think from a spy point of view, yeah, it's good to be able to speak different languages. Yeah. So we're saying more Felix rather than Bond. Yeah, probably. I don't know. Yeah, okay, well, that would do. I don't know if Felix had environmentalist tendencies. <laughs> probably not, as a CIA sort of operator. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. Right. Everyone is... Oh, no, hold up. What books would you recommend if people wanted to learn more about Daly and his ideas? Mm. Excuse me, I've got a mouthful of collar cheese. Yeah. There. Um, Shall I start then? No, 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 start. Okay, go on. A few things in his own words. I mean, firstly, there's tons of sort of YouTube clips of him speaking. Yes. So this is one of the beauties of doing a more recent sort of economist. Yeah. You can find uh, lots of uh, speeches by him very eloquent, articulate, funny man. Uh, so he's probably the best uh, person to express sort of his ideas. Um, some of the things that I suggest people might enjoy reading, uh, the, the original sort of anthology, if you like, that he edited, it was updated twice, but in, in 1973, there was a uh, sort of an anthology called Towards a Steady State Economy. And it contains the original article that eventually Schumacher turned into Smallest Beautiful. Yeah, I like it. And also a really famous article by Garrett Hardin, The Tragedy of the Commons. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and there's other, I think this might also contain a sort of an article about population by a chap called Paul Ehrlich. Yeah, because it was interesting actually reading up on Daly and seeing his sort of support for Garrett Hardin, didn't yeah. you? I mean, you don't really get a sense of Ostrom coming through at all. No, no, no. With his work. Um, <clears throat> I think I would strongly recommend his World Bank sort of leaving speech. Yeah. It did make me think, actually, um, and I should be careful what I say here, because I know your mum listens to our podcast, but your appalling behaviour at a leaving speech when we worked together. Mm. You had a few too many beverages, and I literally had to push you <laughs> under a table because you were heckling someone during a leaving speech. You probably don't remember that. But, uh, yeah, I probably don't. I do, yeah. Well, there you go. And did you do my leaving speech? Uh, when I left I don't know I can't remember I don't remember anything (laughs) I know that I did play in an assembly didn't I the Queen song you're my best friend oh yeah Yeah, that was a beautiful moment (laughs) Uh, so I'd recommend that anthology I'd recommend that leaving speech I suppose thinkers who are related we've mentioned this numerous times in the episode so far Donut Economics by Kate Rayworth and in some respects really sort of almost an updating of Daly's ideas you know that pyramid where you've got the... Yeah. Well, the two elements in the pyramid would be like sort of... Uh, I can't remember the exact sort of parallel terms in uh, the donut, but you've got the idea of human well-being and the natural environment representing the two yeah. sort of limits, if you like. Yeah. Uh, of the donut. Yeah. Uh, and again, so I, I think that 
she would certainly, one would argue, have been inspired by Daly. Yeah. Uh, In fact, uh, you can see them chat. Yeah, yeah. There is, there is a good YouTube link with that. And then there is uh, a biography, which we I haven't read, but I'm sure it's very good. Pete Ray Victor. Yes. They are Herman Daly's Economics for a Full World. Yeah, I watched the launch of it, which yeah. they did on YouTube, which is quite interesting. Good. Quite no, expensive. Any, yeah. I tried to get it in the library and struggled. Well, maybe it's something we can... <laughs> read at some point yeah there you go right over to you yeah well I think it was interesting actually because obviously this idea of clearly Kate Rayworth had inspired was inspired by Herman Daly mm-hmm. and Herman Daly I, I read somewhere or sort of say it was inspired by Silent Spring by Rachel Carson mm. so you know it's like the passing of the baton isn't mm. it I think that's kind of quite interesting um there's a couple of books. The Progress Illusion by John D. Erickson mm-hmm. is, you know, the same sort of thing. You know, how do we get believed in fairy tale of economics kind of related to GDP? Yeah. You know, how can we get past the illusion to design an economy that is just socially just and ecologically balanced? So Erickson's writing about basically what Daly's talking about there. I would yeah. argue Tim- Timothy Parakee, his book, The Political Economy of Degrowth, mm-hmm. came out in 2019. Mm-hmm. Timothy Parakee, has tweet. I hope we're saying his name right. Has tweeted some fantastic stuff about daily and the imagery and things right. like that. And, yeah. and I think we've retweeted at the time, but yeah. we will share that again. Yeah. It's a brilliant thread he did on it. Prosperity without growth by Tim Jackson. Yeah, like you know, proper classic kind of book on that. Mm-hmm. And I added in here Michael Sandel's What Money Can't Buy. Yeah, so I just love that book. Yeah. And ultimately, it's about ethics within economics. Yeah. And I think that kind of covers. You kind of got the ecological kind of bit covered with all those books. Yeah. What about the ethical side of yeah. it? And I think Sandel is your classic man for that. Yeah. I think so what I like go. about both Daily and sort of the Rainworth thing is it isn't just about well, the environment. The environment is about human dignity, yeah. human flourishing as well. And I think you get that a real, it's both those sort of aspirations, if yeah. you like. And yeah. I think certainly that's very appealing. Yeah, exactly. Right, if Daly was a boxer, what would his walk-on music be and why? Well, I was thinking about sort of environmental-related music. Yeah. So, got Mercy, Mercy Me by Marvin Gaye. You talked about ecology. And yeah, that. it's a great, great yeah, song. Nice song. I don't think it's that boxy. No. Um, I've not heard this, but SOS Mother Nature, Will I Am. Have you heard that? No. It's, good. it's in the title, though. I mean, yeah, no, no, I get it. Yeah, yeah. Rap, rap music's normally pretty good for boxing. Yeah, dancers, I would argue. Yeah. Yeah. And then, but the one I, <laughs> I could I couldn't look beyond this one, and you're gonna laugh. Earth song by Michael Jackson. God, I love that song. Ah. Ah. Can you imagine just walking in slowly in the crowd. Ah. What about the elephants? What about us? <laughs> yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. Um, so over to you. Your suggestions. Yeah. I think I've told, I might have said this before on the podcast, but did I tell you about when I did a presentation to the SLT? I don't think you were there, senior leadership team. No. About the paperless school. Oh, yeah. Our old head, Alan, asked me yeah. to do it, about how we should make sure our school is much more environmentally friendly. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, I did my presentation. I thought yeah. it was a very good presentation. And I said, I'm just going to finish now with this. And I put the video of Earth Song, Michael <laughs> Jackson. You didn't. Yeah. And oh, I, I, I turned round to make sure I wasn't facing anyone. And it's about a seven minute long video. And I, I wanted to see 
how long it would be until someone says, uh, Gavin, I think... We've uh, seen enough. <laughs> yeah. And it's Pamela who eventually said it. Uh, how yeah. long was it? It was a good three or four minutes in. Wow. So, I think we've seen enough now, Gavin. <laughs> yes. What a great story. So anyway, there you go. Uh, anyway, uh, I went for The Feeling, Feel My Little World. Right, okay. You know, because that's what, you know, Feel My Little yeah. World, right. Uh, De La Soul, Three is the Magic Number. Yeah. In tribute to... Um, True Guy. Yeah. Mm. And uh, obviously we're going to go and see them in concert. Uh, but just because there's three sustainability rules. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, average white band. Oh, yeah. Let's go round again. Circular economy. Oh, yeah. yeah. And then the final one, um, I looked up because I loved the, his his expression about economics having two feet in the air. Yeah. So I looked to see if there was a song called Two Feet in the Air. Yeah. And there is by this bloke called Mac the Musician. Mm-hmm. So I went on in there and I had a listen rude, to it. No, it's um, just a piano yeah. piece. Oh, yeah, a simple piano piece. And then I tried to hunt him down on Twitter. And in his little biog, the last little thing says economist. Oh. So, well, <laughs> well, well, well. Let's go over some. Yeah. Good. <laughs> <laughs> I could, like you're right. I think you could see him walking out, can't yeah, you? Yeah. So, I've had a lengthy debate, though, whether it's still okay to listen to Michael Jackson. Yeah, anyway, well, um, one, for another, one for another time yeah I think one that's the same ethics, with yeah. um, all, all the stuff there uh, right okay <clears throat> it's uh, poetry time right do you want me to read a line uh, yeah I'm just uh, going to write it out for you okay okay and um, hopefully you know the listeners will enjoy it this time we have not got um, a, ch- a chat GPT version of it so this is all my um, I say hard work Mm. There you go. Your work. Yeah. Well, you say it's not a chat sheet. How would we know? Yeah, exactly. Right, ready? Yeah, go for it. Who told us all the world was full, but mainstream economists weren't playing ball? That, my friend, is Herman Daly. More important now than ever, maybe. His ideas were inspired by J.S. Mill, and he offers all uh, offered us all the red pill, a way of life that would ask difficult questions. And you wouldn't like all the suggestions, such as limiting the number of those born and ignoring advice that was well-worn, like the relentless push for economic growth that's become the neoclassical oath. A steady state is what you have to accept to make sure you're not in Earth's debt. For when economic growth becomes uneconomic, it makes chasing it seem rather ironic. That's why he suggested an alternative plan to measure economies from Bhutan to Pakistan with an index that focused on sustainability rather than destructive nature of our economy. Will his advice be taken on board? The chances are it will be roundly ignored. Oh, a down note. Can I just say it got better? Thanks. I thought there's a kind of sort of a para rhyme in the first couple of lines. Yeah. Ball and full. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, no, about, you know the poet Jared yeah. Manley Hopkins. Everyone's he, a critic. Yeah. Jared Manley Hopkins used to that was his thing. Right. Para rhymes. Para rhymes. Yeah. So what, what like little like half rhymes. Like yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, what? meal and peel. No ball and full. Oh yeah, full and ball. Yeah. yeah. Look that's, up Jared Manley Hopkins. That's what it starts with. Yeah. The wreck of the Hesperus. You'll, you'll, wow. You'll enjoy it. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. You can add to all, you know. <laughs> Yeah, I will do. Um, so, do we like him and will we have a beer with him? Yeah, to be honest though, interestingly, I've been mean, read his biography, I think it's a 
I don't really know what he's into, you know, in terms yeah, of sort of hobbies and things that he enjoys. I know he went know fishing like... once. Right. Okay. There's a picture of Peter Jackson uses, not Peter Jackson, Peter Victor, of him catching a huge fish. Right. Which he did say he probably wouldn't have yeah. done now. But he, fishing. Like swimming. Right. Apparently in his uh, latter years he liked um, right. watching films. Maybe we could have a film night. We could have a film night. What would we watch with him? I don't know, what's like a film with an environmental sort of message? Uh, the World After Tomorrow. Yeah, why not? Um, yeah. Say it! To be honest, I did struggle with that question more than normal because I didn't yeah. pick up many biographical details about things he would enjoy in his leisure time. Yeah. Real family man. He gets yeah, good on him. Yeah. Why not, eh? Spend time with your family. We probably couldn't do that with, well, you know. Well, we could. We could have all have a picnic. Yeah, big family All picnic. have a picnic. Or bring some sustainable items. Yes. Yeah. And okay. food do. Yeah. Looks yeah. after the planet. Yeah. Lovely. Okay. No litter. Uh, uh, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> we could maybe watch the Wombles with him. Yeah. Not about litter picking. Yeah. That's how we just trivialise <laughs> this great man's body of work <laughs> by referring to the Bombles and reducing yeah. the environmental movement to litter picking we could have done yeah. that we could have done that as a song it yeah. was coming out to remember we're the Wombles yeah. anyway um, if we were out with him what one question would you ask him and why I think I would ask him about his ideas uh, about how to I don't know influence the political class so that you know, you don't get that kind of reversal, you know, like, oh, yeah, when we first come to power, we've got a healthy majority, and then we hit economic problems, reverse, reverse, you know, that kind of get rid of that green crap sort of thing. How do you sort of... I'm not sure you'd have an answer, but it'd be an yeah. interesting thing to discuss with him, that sort of yeah. how does one developer a, a sort of bipartisan consensus about um, environmentalism. Yeah. It just suddenly reminded me, that's something that we haven't talked about with him. Is that he did love a debate, yeah. and there was a, I've got a list, a list of like these famous debates he had with yeah. people. He was not shy yeah. on taking on anyone. He loved all that. Didn't Friedman ever get go hammer? I don't know. Yeah. Maybe that's it. Maybe we, but that's a good, a good question to ask. You know, yeah. um, him and Friedman would make a good head to head. Yeah, they? He, they they would do. Yeah. I mean, that that'd be really good. I'd like to know whether he ever considered a mechanical arm, because yeah. I assume the technology by that stage. I don't know. He was obviously comfortable without it. But I was wondering, obviously, as stuff developed, if he could potentially have a robotic arm, would, would he have chosen a robotic arm? Yeah. You know. Interesting. But there you go. It's just something that I thought about. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, who is it next time? I'm not trivialising sort of disability there. No, I'm not trivialising it. I'm just because the thing is, is that back in the day... Yeah. There probably wasn't that technology, but we're yeah. seeing the advancement of, you know, going back to Isaac Asimov and Arthur yeah. C. Clarke and the robotics and the incredible advancements in yeah. in that technology. Yeah, well, I was trying to about that briefly with my brother because obviously my brother is sort of paralysed from the sort of uh, mm. roughly the waist down, as it were. But uh, you know, and there have been you know this stuff you you see at some of these sort of those eco skeletons, yeah, things hmm. like that, uh, yeah. or even you know some. At, at the moment, it's almost like in the future, as it were. But you kind of think, you know, 
don't know, I don't want to speak for him, but you think you, you kind of would. Why wouldn't you? Hmm. But maybe if you're getting towards the end of your life and you've lived with that. And actually, he did see it as a positive, didn't he, in his case? like uh, Yeah. It's almost like this reminder that focus on the things that you can and you can't do. Yeah. And don't. But I suppose if you were a younger person. Yeah. Anyway, we're dying. Yeah. Anyway, there you go. Um, so, uh, who is it next time or what's happening? What's going on? Uh, so, I think we were debating about this before we went on air, yeah. as it were. And I think we... We're going to go for Leon Walrus. Leon Walrus. I'm probably yeah. going to say that wrong completely all the time, aren't we? Valras. Valras. We'll have to look. We'll have to find out how to say it. But uh, we haven't done a classical kind of economist for a while, have we? So we thought we'd go back to some of the origin stuff. Yeah. 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 Okay. Cool. Like it. So. Or a marginalist. Yes. Uh, What probably daily criticizes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So we'd like to thank you all for listening, and hope that you'll listen to our next podcast. Um, We'd also like to thank our friend Nick, as always, who gave us technical advice with regards to podcasting. And please, please, please do remember to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Economics in 10 or contact us by email at economicsin10 at gmail.com. Yeah, we'd love to hear from you. And we, we as you say it all the time, we love a review. Yeah, we love reviews. Whether yeah. it's good or bad. Yeah, it helps spread the word though, you know. And if you do recommend us to other people if you enjoyed what you've listened to. Yeah. Yeah. We are shallow. We like followers. We like reviews. Yeah. Yeah. So there you go. Anyway, have a nice evening or morning or whatever you're doing. Yeah, all right. Good night.